Hey, Paul, welcome back to Pope Francis Generation. And we are talking today about the infinite dignity of every human person. How are we getting a whole episode out of that? Um, I mean, this principle of Catholic social teaching really is the foundational principle of everything else the church teaches about, um, about morality and about, uh, especially social morality. So it is, uh, it is the foundation and there's a lot to unpack here. Well, I think let's just do it. I mean, without this, pretty much everything falls apart. Um, in, well, either in whether or not you believe in, in religion or not, or anything spiritual, you get rid of this foundational axiom and, uh, well, we get problems. And so let's talk about that. Uh, hello, friends. Welcome to Pope Francis Generation, the show for Catholics struggling with the church's teaching who feel like they might not belong in the church anymore and who still hunger for a God of love and goodness. Your hosts are me, Paul Fahey, a professional catechist. I'm Dominic, someone who needs catechesis. Together, we're taking our own look at the Catholic Church, her teachings and practices from three views that changed our world. And those are the Kerygma, the Doctrine of Theosis, and the teachings of Pope Francis. Together with you, we're the Pope Francis generation. Where do you want to begin? How do you want to start unpacking this? Yeah, I, I want to start from uh, a, a quote from Pope Francis's most recent encyclical, Fratelli Tutti. Mm -hmm. uh, he says this, Faith has untold power to inspire and sustain our respect for others. For believers come to know that God loves every man and woman with infinite love and thereby confers infinite dignity upon all humanity. So the, the image that, that I have here um, is kind of like a cross. You have a vertical infinite depth, Mm -hmm. And then you have a universal horizontal horizon. So mm -hmm. every single human being, that's that horizontal width, everyone, mm -hmm. no, no human being is excluded, has infinite value. Mm -hmm. This proposal of the church is not only the foundation, like I said, of everything else the church teaches in regards to Catholic social teaching, but it undermines almost every um, political party or political ideology. Mm -hmm. This really right. becomes the primary criteria with which we judge everything else. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What happens when, what happens when you lose this, what happens to a culture or to decision-making when you don't have this uh, foundational dignity? that every human is afforded. Yes. So, so there's both, uh, I would distinguish when a society loses its belief in this, um, mm -hmm. versus loses its practice. Cause okay. it's really the practice that's important, right? A society can say they value all human beings and then in practice do something extremely different. Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, I mean, Pope Francis and, John Paul II, Pope Benedict spent a lot of time, you know, expounding upon, uh, John Paul II used the language of culture of death. Like, you know, what, what are the implications of a society where they don't practice this value? Um, mm -hmm. but what we see is the tendency and we see this going on in the present and we see this going on in the past of where members of society exclude other members of society from having full value. Right. And that can be because of race, that can be because of age, that can be because of economic class, um, that can be because of uh, someone's sex. It doesn't matter. We, uh, there people are excluded from society and are deemed to be less value, uh, less valuable or less important or less worthy of participation in that society. Mm -hmm. Um, we, I say we, I'll say Americans, we really like to hang on to this belief. Mm -hmm. But as we'll see by the, by the end of this discussion, in practice, we don't hang right. on to that belief. Right. So uh, I, I want to start by going back to scripture first, um, because our infinite dignity is rooted in our being made in the image and likeness of God. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so, so this is a distinct Christian revelation. Um, this is not human beings made in the image and likeness of God is not something that an, an atheist, for example, is going to um, adhere to. Um, but as Christians, we recognize that this is our identity and this is where our dignity comes from. Mm-hmm. So in, in the creation stories, in Genesis, in the first creation story, we see God calling things into being. Like there was nothing, there was chaos, and then God brings order, and he creates everything from nothing. And when he speaks, it happens. He says, let there be light, and there's light, and let there be water, and there's water, let there be animals, mm-hmm. and there's animals, etc. In the second story of creation, which is Genesis chapter 2, we see in this recounting, God doesn't call man into existence. God gets on his hands and knees, whatever that means, and gets in the dirt of the earth and forms man with his hands. And then scripture says he breathes life into man's nostrils. Mm -hmm. So there is something about human beings. They have a specialness, an intimacy, a closeness with God that the other creatures do not share. And... God breathes his life into them. He's bestowing something of himself in a, in a greater way. I mean, everything God creates has the thumbprint of God in some way, right? Because everything that's created bears witness to the creator, right? You can walk into an art gallery, you know, that has a whole section dedicated to one artist and you can pick up information about that artist. Like, Oh man, they really like the woods, you know, or the color (laughs) purple is one of their favorites. You can pick, you, you can know something about the artist from what they create, Mm -hmm. but in a really explicit way, God shares himself with human beings that he does. And he doesn't do that with the rest of creation. So this action of God breathing his life is, uh, is what we call grace. Um, and not to go too far down a rabbit hole, but too often we imagine grace as something other than God, as like a spiritual vitamin. I think we've talked about, I think we've talked about this in, in season one. Yeah. But grace is simply the very life of God freely given to us. Mm-hmm. And that's what God's doing here. He's giving man his life, making man in his image and his likeness. Um, so human beings sit in this place of overlap between the spiritual and the physical and we sit as priests, as mediators, right? Mm-hmm. So with this place of honor, um, there's a, a scripture uh, podcast that I listened to, and they talked about how, like in the ancient world, if you go to a city in Assyria or a city in Babylon, they'd have all the gods of that city. Mm-hmm. And the gods, they would have these wooden idols in their temple. Mm-hmm. But the idols didn't just represent the god. They were the God in some way. So when one city would attack another city, they'd go to the temple, they'd raid the temple, and they'd cart off all of the idols Mm -hmm. and hold that city's gods hostage, right? Mm -hmm. This is the environment in which the writers of Scripture are present. So the language of image of God is really an image of idol. We are the idol of the Almighty God, the creator of everything. Mm-hmm. which then you put that in light of that first commandment of you shall not make, you know, any idols. It's because we are God's idol. Why would mm-hmm. we make a wooden idol or a stone idol out of God when we are these mm-hmm. living idols, these living images yeah. that make God present in the world, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. A word that's more probably in modern parlance would be the word icon, which yes. is equivalent to like a keyhole in time and space through which uh, spiritual realms look out at us. And in the same way we are, um, there's a special way in which we are an embodiment of God and of his life at a distinct time and place, but with our own, there's our own freedom and our own story, uh, going on. But when, yeah. We, so yeah. And hence the, you know, stop it with the false worship of things that are, 
of me, but are not me. You know, God saying, stop, you know, we, we obsess over the things of God as opposed to God himself. Yeah. Of making the lesser thing a higher thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so in this, we see the profound dignity of man. And I use the word infinite because I mean, that's the word the Pope uses. Mm-hmm. But infinite's an important word because mm-hmm. infinite has no end. There is nothing material in our universe that is infinite. Even space, which is just mind numbingly huge, is not infinite, right? Infinite is also important because if it has no end, then one infinite can't be greater than another infinite. Mm-hmm. So by saying that every single human being, every individual has infinite value, what we're saying then is that one life is not worth less than a hundred lives. Because you can't That's weigh infinite yeah. against infinite. Yeah. That's something that I have grappled with because it seems to be so um, pragmatic and practical to echo what the Pharisees said. It is better for one man to die than, than the many. And, uh, I mean, you hear that in, in what is it, uh, Jack Bauer? I mean, it's every political thriller, you know. Um, yep. I mean, that's how war happens and gets done. It's just how the world turns, you know. And then you wonder, well, it was the Pharisees that Christ was going against who first, I mean, that we have it, you know, written down. That they were saying that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, and I've it, kind of wondered, what do you do with that? How do you, how do you get around that? Because it, it does seem to make an incredible amount of sense. Yeah. So... And we see this playing out in this desire that we have, this rhetoric that we have to, well, we can torture this one person to potentially save a thousand lives. Mm-hmm. Or, or the life of this not yet developed unborn child um, isn't, is worth less than the lives of their parents, right? Um, yeah. We see this playing out. We see this playing out in the moral calculation of dropping the bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. It's better that this city and these thousands of people be destroyed than potentially losing the millions of lives and dragging this war out for any longer, right? Right. We have this temptation to make these calculations. And in some circumstances, within the practicality of our life, when our concrete circumstances and our concrete uh, limitations, we have to make some type of calculus with mm-hmm. the best that we have available to us. Right. But and it may not be like a, a perfect choice. Yes. And there may, at the same time, I wonder if it's also, I, I mean, just like I said, I think we've talked a little bit about this Nagasaki and, and so on. Like there are sometimes just only awful choices available. And in the moment there can feel like there are no other options between the two ob- seemingly obvious ones that must be decided on in this moment for in you know for looking for the greater good but that still doesn't negate uh like you said earlier we all believe in this thing do we all actually act on it and just because uh it's not always possible do I don't we know. actually be- yeah do we actually on. believe that when it comes to human life the ends do not justify the means mm-hmm. and that's well i think that's kind of what we're where this is going is uh, it's kind of like the Holy Father saying stuff like, you know, the death penalty, it's inadmissible. Not just that it's bad or it's wrong, but eh, it's like, no, you can't even bring it up. It's it's not even an option anymore. Stop admitting it, you know, putting it on the table. Yeah, it is not an option anymore. And we're going to talk about, uh, we're going to talk about uh, the death penalty specifically. But I, I want to set up like one more thing <laughs> from scripture here. So... As Christians, we also have this idea of sin. So um, God's original plan for creation, there is this profound harmony between man and God, between amongst people like men and women. Like John Paul II has this idea of the uh, interior gaze. Um, And scripture conveys this by talking about how Adam and Eve were clothed with the glory of God. There's this sense that when Eve looked at Adam, she saw God shining from his skin. Like the image of God was so visibly and palpably present that she knew only love for him. Mm-hmm. 
right? Um, this was God's original intent. Uh, and he gives man freedom. He gives man knowledge. He makes man in his image and his likeness. Okay. So he says to Adam and Eve, right? You can eat of the fruit of any tree in the garden except this one. So in the story, where do we find Adam and Eve hanging out? Precisely not where they're supposed to be. And they're talking with a serpent who they shouldn't be talking with. And the serpent is putting these, uh, these lies and these temptations uh, in, into that environment. And he's saying things like, did God really say you shouldn't do this thing? Did God really mean maybe God's keeping something from you? Maybe you should take this for yourself. So the catechism says that that first sin has a very particular form. That the first movement in that sin was that Adam and Eve doubted God's goodness. And the second movement was that they grasped in disobedience themselves. Mm -hmm. Doubting God's goodness, grasping in control. Then the catechism says every sin has that exact same form. Every sin I have ever committed was first because I doubted God's goodness and his power and his providence in that situation. Mm -hmm. So I grasp a control myself. And in making the free choice to reject God and to reject life, Adam and Eve broke the harmony of God's creation. They broke the cosmos in some way. And mm -hmm. we live in that brokenness. This is also what the church means by original sin. We don't share in the personal guilt of Adam and Eve, but we share in the brokenness that was caused by their sin, right? However, mm, now, and I'll add to this brokenness. In the story, we hear that after Adam and Eve ate the fruit, like the very next verse is they looked at each other they saw that they were naked, they felt ashamed, and they made clothes. And what's being communicated here is no longer did they see God shining forth from the other. Right? Eve looked at Adam and no longer saw God shining from him. Rather, she saw someone who could be used and abused and manipulated. She saw someone who was vulnerable, who, was, who before then was not vulnerable. And in that recognition, she recognized that she could be used and abused and manipulated, that she was vulnerable. So she made close for herself. Likewise, when Adam looked at Eve, he no longer saw God shining from her. He saw someone who could be used and manipulated, and he recognized that vulnerability in himself. This yeah. was immediate. So human beings lost this harmony they had with each other and this harmony they had with God and the cosmos was broken. However, they did not lose their dignity. Human beings, even in sin, did not and do not lose the fact that they're made in the image of God. Mm -hmm. So nothing, not even sin or death, can diminish a person's infinite dignity. Therefore, even in a world broken by sin, human beings can never be used as means to some other end, ever. Because what other end is infinitely valuable, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Human what beings could can never be, be used as means to an end. Yeah. And therefore, respecting the dignity of human beings must be the reason and purpose for all economic and social and political activity. Because mm -hmm. if there were any other end, you would be using people for that other end. Does that mm -hmm. make sense? Yeah. yeah. It reminds me of something, um, uh, who is it? Father uh, Richard Rohr would say in a lot of his writing where he's like, Christ became man to teach us to be human beings, not to teach us to be angels, not to teach us to be something less than or something. No, no. part of the problem is we have consistently deprioritized the value of what it means to be human. We're decentered as a human thing. And God came and not only gave this, you know, wonderful seal of approval at the beginning, but then Christ came and, and, you know, flowered that nature into the fullness of his, his divine nature as well, um, to tell us something, 
And yeah. he did that in a distinct way that outshines everything else um, in the universe, uh, or in, in creation, I should say. So we need to be better human beings. I mean, that's really the point of life, isn't it? It's, it's to, uh, to um, not discipline ourselves, but to uh, soften ourselves out of the, the hardness of our hearts uh, and to welcome Christ as alive and to welcome life in Christ all at the same time throughout the course of our 70 years or 80, if you're strong or however the yeah. Psalm goes. Um, but that's kind of the point is be uh, a human being fully alive. Yeah. I, I think it's uh, I think you're right. I would reverse the order though. Mm -hmm. It is precisely by welcoming Christ that he makes us soft. Exactly. That that he changes us. I, exactly. I think it's Gaudium et Spes that talks about um, the, the the document from the Second Vatican Council that talks about how Jesus like paves the way, and, it, mm -hmm. and in following him, we come to understand ourselves. Mm -hmm. Right. He makes us who we are supposed to be. Mm -hmm. Um. So yeah, there's this real sense of like not just going back to how things were in the garden, but through Christ being restored and then elevated uh, to something greater, elevated to who he is. Mm -hmm. um, so, sin, so sin, even though it doesn't diminish our dignity, it does create this temptation within us to reduce other people's dignity to use people for the sake of some other end. And mm -hmm. often that other end is wealth or power or pleasure or honor, these good things, mm -hmm. but that we use human beings as means to those end, ends, mm -hmm. right? So Pope Francis has this line in his book, Let Us Dream, that was, that was published as kind of his, his, his reflections on the pandemic and then his proposals for moving forward. He, he talks about modern culture mm -hmm. and he says this he says we have this mindset that quote despises the limit that another's value imposes we have this mindset that despises the limit that another person's value imposes mm -hmm. and i think that he's getting at the heart of the corruption of of sin this idea of concupiscence that we have this brokenness within us because of sin where I should welcome like the good Samaritan. I should welcome the burden mm -hmm. that other people put on my life because of how valuable they are. And I think of like, you know, my own children, um, like having an infant, mm -hmm. like what a tremendous burden, but also like, uh, along with that burden is this desire for this person and this desire for this person ideally overwhelms that burden. Yes. Right. This is a, a burden worth carrying and sacrificing for and changing a life for. Yeah. And not just tolerated, but welcomed, right? Wanted, this burden is yes. welcomed, but we have within us this brokenness that despises the limits that another person's value imposes. Mm -hmm. And, I think that behind this, behind this mindset is the fear that God isn't actually as good as he says that he is and that he will not care for my needs mm -hmm. and my desires. So I grasp at control myself. Right. I'm afraid that I won't have enough mm -hmm. of whatever enough is, whether that's financially enough or materially enough or emotionally enough or relationally enough. I fear that I won't have enough. So I use other people and grasp and use them to fill this need in some way. Um, Especially in I, like um, the first world West. And like, we've had conversations with some of our guests who are coming up on the show, uh, talking about why the economy uh, does what it does and how it functions and why it functions. And, and so much of it is centered around that, that specific point that we, um, and this is my contention, especially in America, First World West, our culture is based around this core idea that nobody else is looking out for me. 
there is no sense of community. And my only safety is me and my bank account um, or my ability to like grow stuff and be a prepper and isolate from others. Um, But that is not the, the, the Christian sense of, of community and almost, uh, I love something the Holy Father says where he's like, uh, what is it? It's like, it takes the rich, only the rich can afford to isolate themselves. The poor can't afford to do that. And in a way that's their saving opportunity, their saving grace, because they are forced into community, they are then forced into human contact and fellowship and, and friendship and, um, interchange and so on. Um, and it's easier for Christ to break through and to, to communicate and, and to create communion and something like that. So there's much to learn then from the poor. I think that if you dig deep enough in a lot of sentiments in American culture are rooted on the idea that it's my responsibility to take care of me and my own and to hell with everybody else. For uh, my family in the last 10 years or so, we've been kind of trekking a, a situation like that where we have actually lost a lot of that support from community and family. And then of course, COVID creates even further isolation and and so on. And for me that, um, how do I say a challenge for me has been to look at the sermon on the Mount and it's not, not really a wager. It's more of like, okay, you said you're this good. I'm going to try to trust you because I have no idea how to do this myself. And I can't see around the corner of tomorrow, but I know you can. Um, and he has, he has pulled through and there have been moments where it's been absolutely bleak and dark and terrible, but you just hold on for like one more day. Maybe. And that becomes one more month. And then you look back and then you begin to see the, the path that he has charted and it's never visible in the moment, but he makes these incredibly radical promises and these statements where he says that he is good and he knows what you need. Um, uh, and that's, I mean, there's a whole discussion and, and sort yeah. of the, the challenge and why that's a tension, but anyway, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah. No, you're, you're hitting on something that in some of Dorothy Day's writings, she juxtaposes what she calls precarity and security. So this idea of precarity, she says, is 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 really the root of uh, the council of poverty. The root of poverty is precarity. That is living a life that is material materially precarious because of how much you trust in God's goodness and His providence. Right? It's not actually precarious if God is who He says that He is. Mm-hmm. But from the eyes of the world, it looks very precarious. So living a life that embraces the reality of precarity or living a life that is spent grasping at security. And she calls those, uh, that group, bourgeois Christians who spend their life grasping Mm -hmm. and trying to secure themselves as much as they possibly can. But this temptation is in all of us. Do I move into this place of precarity, trusting in the Lord? Who do I grasp at security? And that's that what that does is it really does push you and prod you to reframe uh, your definition of security. And if it is what we are telling ourselves today. So anyway, let's go, let's continue with the the actual (laughs) menu here. Yeah. Um, so as I mentioned before, the word that John Paul II used to talk about, um, this culture that despises the limits that another person's value imposes, he calls it the culture of death. Um, Mm -hmm. Pope Francis describes the same thing, and he uses the phrase, a throwaway culture. Um, So Francis has this line from Fratelli Duty. He says, some parts of our human family, it appears, can be readily sacrificed for the sake of others considered worthy of a carefree existence. Ultimately, persons are no longer seen as, as a paramount value to be cared for and respected, especially when they are poor and disabled, not yet useful like the unborn, or no longer needed like the elderly. He's talking about how we shift, we slip right in into this utilitarian thinking. Mm-hmm. And we first ask, is this person useful? And then assign them value based on their usefulness, rather than saying this person is valuable in and of themselves. Now let's create a culture and create a home 
where everybody has, everyone has a place, whether or not yeah. they can produce or do anything. Yeah. Okay. So do you want to make everyone uncomfortable now? <laughs> All right, let's, let's do it. Um, as I said before, this principle of the infinite dignity of every human person, like it cuts through our political parties and our political ideologies, especially here in the United States. Um, too often I have seen, and you'll see why this is a problem. I've seen like Catholic voters guides, um, not coming from the bishops, coming from independent apostolates. Mm -hmm. They talk about the five non-negotiables. They're, so right. they're like, if you're Catholic and you're you know, conscientious about voting, these are the five non-negotiables, the five intrinsic evils. And mm -hmm. um, they, they're usually uh, abortion, euthanasia, embryonic stem cell research, human cloning, and same-sex marriage. These are like the five non-negotiables, the five intrinsic yeah. evils. Now, like issues. Uh, two things wrong with this. The first is that it's clearly, that list is clearly partisan. There's one political party that lines up with those and one that doesn't. Mm -hmm. The other thing wrong with it is that it's not true. Uh, the church do actually doesn't have a list of five non-negotiables. It has this understanding of intrinsic evils. But when you look at that list, it looks very different. So Vatican II list, had this list of these gravely evil non-negotiable issues. And John Paul II reaffirmed those and said, yeah, these are intrinsically evil. And what that means is uh, intrinsic evil simply means that there are no circumstances that make this action okay. Mm -hmm. Okay, this is the list. When, this, when these items are intended for their own, uh, their own sake. Like Correct. there might be some others with a shade of, you know, you could sort of get around it or there's a different intent going on, but with these willed for their own intent and not as a byproduct. Mm -hmm. That's what yeah. makes these just... yeah. And there's like, there's shades of culpability in that, right? right. Um, and, and all of this kind of stuff, but as actions, um, there are no circumstances that make this, that make these okay. So that's a different mm -hmm. question than someone's culpability. Right. But these are the actions, any type of murder, genocide, abortion, euthanasia, willful self-destruction. Uh, then he goes on to say mutilation. Um, torments inflicted on body or mind, so that would be torture, subhuman living conditions, arbitrary imprisonment, deportation, slavery, prostitution, the selling of women and children, disgraceful working conditions where men are treated as mere tools for profit rather than as free and responsible persons. This yeah. is not, now this is a much bigger list than those five non-negotiables. Mm -hmm. It is also not exhaustive. There are other right. things the church, church has taught that would be on this list of non-negotiable or in, um, intrinsically evil actions. Mm -hmm. Notice how there isn't a political party in the United States yeah. that falls neatly on this list. Well, this right? cuts right across the two primary ones anyway. Yeah. And notice, and in a later episode, we'll talk about um, migration and immigration more specifically. Notice okay. on this list, um, so this is, uh, on this list it says deportation with no qualifiers, right? Deportation is intrinsically evil. It's on the same list as genocide and abortion. Mm -hmm. This should make us uncomfortable. Um, we... And by we, I mean like Christians, we compromise human dignity in our support, in our intentional support for any of these things. I think if we, if we examine our own consciences, we examine our own hearts, the issues on this list that we are most willing to tolerate for some other end shows our own political biases, right? We yeah. talked about in the first episode, how the church calls us to let our moral values shape our political um, activity and not let our partisanship shape us. Mm -hmm. 
this is a key moment in that examination. Right. Which of these, which of this, these things on this list, um, am I uncomfortable with being on this list? And which of these things on this list, even if I'm like, oh yeah, that's bad. Am I most willing to tolerate for the sake of some other end? Mm -hmm. Now, in reality, in actual political participation, even the level of voting, there are some things we have to tolerate because there is no Catholic party. There is no politician that adheres to Catholic social teaching. Um, so often we have, to, we have to weigh things mm -hmm. and this is the work of conscience. And this is where like, uh, the U S bishops voting guide, forming consciences for faithful citizenship is helpful in doing that. Mm -hmm. That's difficult work. You have to weigh things. You have to make compromises. That's, what it means to be in society and in relationship with other people. Mm -hmm. But in our own hearts and our own self-examination, I think it's important to ask ourselves, which of these is it easier for me to tolerate? And what does that say about my own political values? Hmm. Um, there's... I'd probably argue more if I had, if I followed the news a lot more, but, but I don't. <laughs> um, I imagine a lot of our listeners probably do. Um, and if they have questions, they can always, of course, comment, uh, or send you their, their tirades, you know, through your website. But anyhow, um, <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm not doing a better job to our listeners of maybe cross-examining you, but ugh, I don't know. News and Twitter just yeah. kind of, it, yeah, too much to take in. Yeah. And, and the church isn't in the business of giving us specific policies we have to adhere to or telling right. us this is who you need to vote for. Um, certainly mm -hmm. not. So Christians in good conscience can come to different conclusions about mm -hmm. which politicians to support and which policies to support. Mm -hmm. Um, but, it, but in good conscience, we can't minimize or dismiss the things on this list. We, mm -hmm. we must let the value, the infinite value of others impose on our consciences. Mm -hmm um, in, in these decisions, when we compromise that, um, then we have, we have stopped doing political life the way Christians ought to do political life. Right. Right. Now on top of this list, it, again, in fatality duty, Pope Francis has emphasized two things specifically. Now, as we said in the first episode, how Catholic social teaching works according to the catechism is the church, the Pope, the magisterium reads the signs of the times and reads what's going on in the world today, and mm -hmm. then brings forth from the depths of revelation and tradition, what's relevant to the people of God in these particular situations. So mm -hmm. a Fratelli Tutti written just two years ago has something very particular to say to us now, right? More so than not that we dismiss the older social encyclicals, but I think we give a pride of place to this one because it's speaking to us today, right? Right, right. Now, the principles are consistent amongst all of them. Mm -hmm. But like John the 23rd in the 1950s was speaking to a different world. Right. Or the 1960s, 1960s, was speaking to a different world than Pope Francis is speaking to us here in mm -hmm. uh, the 2020s. Okay. Those two issues are a war and capital punishment. So... I'll start by reading this passage and then unpacking it. Okay. So this is what Francis says. He, he says the war can easily be chosen by invoking all sorts of allegedly humanitarian, defensive or precautionary excuses and even resorting to the manipulation of information. Now, as an American, it's hard not to hear him criticizing the Iraq war of the early two thousands in this, mm -hmm. a, a manipulating of information to argue for a defensive war when this was anything but that, right? Pope continues, in recent decades, every single war has been ostensibly justified in some way, in this sense. He goes on, the truth is that never has humanity had such power over itself, yet nothing ensures that that power, that power will be used wisely. We can no longer think of war as a solution because its risks will probably always be greater than its supposed benefits. In view of this, it is very difficult nowadays to invoke the rational criteria elaborated in earlier centuries to speak of the possibility of a just war. Never again war. 
So the church has in its tradition this idea of a just war. And it's this list mm-hmm. of criteria that the catechism says this criteria must be met, all of, all of the criteria, all at the same time. It's a pretty high bar. Right. And this criteria includes things like it must be a war of defense and not offense. There must be a reasonable chance of winning. Otherwise, you're just throwing bodies on top of bodies, right? Um, your conduct during war must respect human dignity. You must do everything you can to avoid civilian casualties. There's a whole long list. Mm-hmm. So the Pope is saying we have this temptation to always justify the wars that we enter into. Right. And he's saying we should probably not. We should probably second guess those justifications. And he's saying that because of the reality of modern warfare, the capacity that we have in modern warfare for untold destruction, that war can never be seen as a solution and it will always cause um, more harm than good. Mm-hmm. So he's not saying, he's not saying, well, we shouldn't listen to just war, but he's making a practical assessment and he's saying the reality of war today. And he goes on in a different passage and he's like, the world is so much more connected now than it ever was that even a localized war mm-hmm. can turn into a, a world war. Right. He's saying the reality of the modern world today is such that any war cannot, that no war can be a just war because of that reality. Um, It's kind of like a, a, a family dinner. And there just comes a point where as long as we're all living in our separate houses, it's easy to pick each other off. But once you bring everybody to the same table, it just becomes impossible to do that same sort of thing and draw lines and segregate and attack each other in the same room. And that's what our world has, has now become. And yep. I, it, in terms of the development of human culture and the human person, it was a wonderful thing what the church did um, or, you know, this Christian influence had on a world engined by war as it was so much in the past. Um, and then, you know, like in the middle ages, like, okay, you can have wars, but not on feast days, not on Sundays, you know? Um, and, you know, it's slowly removing and, and whittling back those, those opportunities until now we're at the point where it, it's easy to still see because we're still formed by these very old habits and practices of how to deal with problems. But that's kind of the, that's the point of the church and why our Holy Father is this spiritual guide for the planet, for not just our religion, but for the world to keep pushing and, and calling human development, human improvement, greater Christic living. Yeah. And, and that's something that the objective of moral law does. And that's something that, uh, that the reality of intrinsic evils does. By taking something off the table and saying, this is not acceptable, it forces us to get creative. Yes. If we take that seriously, it forces us to find a better solution. Right. The boundaries of the moral law, the boundaries of doctrine force Mm -hmm. us to get creative. And that's what the Pope, that's what I see the Pope doing here. He's saying Mm -hmm. we must take war off the table Mm -hmm. and find something better. Right. Right. Um, we have to stop, you know, building the hospitals at the bottoms of the cliffs. That's not an option anymore. Yeah. Maybe so we should stop going off the cliff. How do we stop that? You know? Yeah. So now we need to start moving back further upstream. Yeah. Um, th- this is the same line of reasoning, I believe with his teaching on capital punishment as well. So, uh, I'll, I'll start with this passage. The Pope says this St. John Paul, II stated clearly and firmly that the death penalty is inadequate from a moral standpoint and no longer necessary um, and no longer necessary from that of uh, penal justice. There can be no stepping back from this position. Today, we state clearly that the death penalty is inadmissible and the church is firmly committed to calling for its abolition worldwide. So the Pope, now a few years before Fatality Duty, the Pope changed the catechism. So this is just an affirmation, a continuation of that work the development that's going on. Mm -hmm. The question of the death penalty. um, It's like, uh, it's like watching the development of doctrine 
happen in real time. So in the early 90s, when the first edition of the Catechism was published, it said um, essentially something like, we should avoid the death penalty, but um, sometimes it's justified um, as, a matter of, as a matter of justice towards the most heinous of criminals, something like that. I forget, it's been a while since I've read the exact wording. Then in the late 90s, you have the second edition of the Catechism. Mm -hmm. And that came out after John Paul II's encyclical, The Gospel of Life, Evangelium Vitae. And in that encyclical, John Paul II approaches this question of capital punishment from a different direction. Instead of emphasizing this idea of retribution, he emphasizes this idea of self-defense. And he said, capital punishment must be a last resort for societies if there is no other means to protect that community from a violent criminal. He's already done this huge development. He shifted the idea of capital punishment away from retribution and instead framed it as self-defense. Mm -hmm. However, what we saw in the United States from, uh, from especially um, conservative Catholics was this exception of, you know, um, there was an exception in John Paul II's teaching. He's like, in almost all cases, the death penalty is unacceptable unless it's needed for self for community self-defense mm -hmm. and they took this like minuscule exception and they blew it up so they could run a truck through it to justify supporting capital punishment in the united mm -hmm. states in one of the most if not the most developed nation in the world we're going to justify capital punishment pope francis closes up that loophole and he and he um there's three points in the uh in his teaching on capital punishment, three points of development. His first point is that the modern world has the capacity to protect society from violent criminals. Therefore, that exception does not apply. He also says we have a, a different idea of the purpose of the penal justice system than we did before, that it's not about retribution. Right. It's about reintegration, if possible. It's about restoration and reintegration. Mm -hmm. And then his third point is we have a greater understanding of human dignity than we did before. And we see this, like the church didn't even condemn slavery until Vatican II, right? We see, especially under John Paul II, this profound development of the infinite dignity of the human person. So Francis is applying that more developed, greater understanding of human dignity to capital punishment. Mm -hmm. And this is a key point. He said, so this is another passage from Fratelli Tutti. The Pope says this, let us keep in mind that not even a murderer loses his personal dignity and that God himself pledges to guarantee this. The firm rejection of the death penalty shows to what extent it is possible to recognize the inalienable dignity of every human being and to accept that he or she has a place in this universe. If I do not deny that dignity to the worst of criminals, I will not deny it to anyone. I will give everyone the possibility of sharing this planet with me, despite all our differences. Pope Francis mm -hmm. is clear is there was this idea in the church at one time that if someone acted so inhumanely, so violently, so animalistically, mm -hmm. they actually reduced their own dignity. Right. Okay. And the Pope is saying that is not the case. And he's doing something interesting here. So I've been a part of the pro-life movement my entire life. And there's this line that I would hear a lot that is true. They would say that if we can't protect the most innocent of people in our community. We can't protect anyone. The Pope mm -hmm. is saying the same thing here, but the other side, he's saying, if we can protect the least innocent, we can protect everybody. Because yeah. here's, because the reality is that the convicted murderer on death row has the same value, the same dignity mm -hmm. as a totally and utterly innocent unborn child. Let me see if sort of say that back to you as, as I'm resonating or, or hearing it, um, especially with like a convicted murderer. Sometimes it seems like, um, I don't know, sometimes it, it feels like you're watching like these movies and there's all the action, the adventure, and it just makes too much sense to just, uh, you know, tell the bad guys you've made too many bad choices. You're too dangerous. I need to kick you off the board. Um, 
you know, it's, it's just way too dangerous to have you on here. And I think there's a difference between a, a situation of like a home invasion, um, as opposed to a government or a culturally sanctioned, you know, effectively a mob lynching or an execution kind of thing that is ex completely different to a heat in the moment sort of need for survival and so on. So we're not even, we're not talking about that kind of thing. We're talking about when everybody is cool and level headed and they're looking at one person and saying, yeah, you don't deserve to be alive anymore. Yep. And to rethink, I mean, that's just, that has been the norm for human culture. It's like, it's always been an option to just knock somebody off if they become too much of an issue. So now if that is no longer possible, well, then what is, as you just said, what is the point of the penit um, penitential, punitary the, system? Yeah, the, the penal system. Penal system. And to now be reframing that, as you've said, as a reintegration thing, it's like the, the fact that we need this is an indication that we have done something deeply wrong with our culture, uh, with our axioms, with our... Uh, with our conditioning, with our training, with our ideas, the, if these things keep filling up and if these kinds of people keep uh, ending up this way, there is something that is happening that is wrong along the line. And to right now, maybe we're not able to fix, air quotes, these people within this generation, but we then need to start as quickly as possible looking at Again, further upstream, what do we need to start changing so that we can continue to build a better and more integrated world? But to then look at these people and say, like you say, they have the same dignity as an innocent child. And how I'm hearing that is they have the same, um, the same right to be alive and to repent and to live and to in that act of living and then how they are treated they may rebel for the entire rest of their lives up until the last moment. And that's their call. But if we, as the jailers, we can't take them off the board of life, but we need to sequester them away from the rest of human culture and living because they have demonstrated an inability to live in harmony with everybody else. And so there is that level of, of practicality and safety, which again, I don't think is even in discussion here, but it's allowing them that freedom in solitary confinement um, to repent. And then how are you treating them as an inmate and to be, which is what we do in, in culture today. It's the sense that I have, and I hope that somebody can correct me on this, but we treat them as like the worst of the worst in the same way that we treat ourselves when we fall into like sin and we're standing in the confession line. I am terrible. God, forgive me. I am the worst of the worst of, and it's like that God, even God doesn't treat us that way. Um, now maybe if you're living in medieval Spain, that's how you're writing your spiritual biographies. Uh, but that's not, one could argue that's not how it should be. That's not actually a healthy way to think. And the fact that we have arranged our culture where this is an option, um, speaks more to our inability to uh, integrate and create a healthy flow of living from birth to death. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. We, as long as this is an option, because it's the easy way out. Like, execution is the easy way out. And the, the Pope is saying, the Church is saying, stop taking the easy way out and do the hard work of rehabilitation and the hard work, as you said, of moving upstream and saying, what's actually causing these problems? What's, what's provoking people to move into, mm -hmm. uh, uh, yeah, to act out violently? How can we change society so that mm -hmm. their dignity is respected in the first place? Mm -hmm. So they're so that they're not in those situations, right? Yeah. There was a, and starting to wrap up, there was a, um, point where, uh, I was, grappling with punishment for my little one who was like having a bad day. And then there came a point where I laid out a condition and consequences and then those were not being respected and it was just getting worse and worse. And then there came a point where I realized there is no way that I can follow through with the consequence I just laid out. I couldn't live with myself if I did. And it's, just, it's, it's inadmissible. Um, and it's in that moment I began to realize I can imagine the first execution where someone was like, I told you not to do that thing or else I would have to go through with the execution and you did it anyway. Now I have no choice but to go through with it. And that awful, awful sense of 
well, I have to keep my word. And it kind of makes me think of that, that story in scripture of the guy who's like, God, I promise you whatever comes out of my house first. And instead of walking back a silly promise, he went through with it and made a terrible situation worse. Um, it was in that moment for me and going through those points of punishment, realizing how I'm dealing with this is all wrong. If I am never going to make that decision, whereas the Holy Father is now challenging us, if you can never make that decision, who do you need to now become? How do you need to now deal with other people? And to be able to then model for the rest of the world, which is some of it is, I don't know what you'd call second world, third world, for the first world to be able to say to everybody, when you live with us, we will never uh, take your life away from you because this is how we hold and believe life to be of such value um, and that everybody has a chance. Now, you, you, you mess it up, we'll sequester you, obviously, and you know put you in solitary confinement, but we'll still give you the basics of human living uh, and call you to something greater, call you to something that is more in tune with what all of life is. Um, I think I'm rambling, but anyhow, back over yeah. to you. No, that's good. Um, to wrap up, um, the practical thing, I guess, to walk away from this is an encouragement to let yourself be deeply challenged and to do the work of vulnerability with yourself and with the Lord and ask yourself if parts of this are challenging, why? What's behind um, the tension or the friction or even the opposition um, that you may feel in hearing these things mm -hmm. um, and let the Lord lead you in the Lord's own way, right? In his progressive way, in his gentle way, lead you to something greater um, than where you're at now, uh, which is which, which is the hard work of conversion, um, but the incredibly good and fruitful work of conversion. Beautiful. Thank you. Well, we do want to take a moment to thank our sponsor for this show. And if you haven't yet heard of them, please do take a moment to listen all the way through. More Catholic leaders choose select international tours over any other pilgrimage company. With 35 years of award-winning travel planning, they have a track record of excellence and faithfulness. And they're a small company with a big heart because every one of their pilgrimage trips helps to support and fund their 501c3 charity work, which is helping Christian families thrive in the Holy Land. So if you're ready to travel or you're looking to lead a group of your own, take the next step on your pilgrimage by visiting selectinternationaltours.com. Paul, if people have questions, objections, tirades about uh, what they're hearing, where can they reach you? Or if they are intrigued or just want to follow and see where this thing goes, how can they get in touch with you? How can they follow the show? Yeah, you can uh, visit PopeFrancisGeneration.com, which is the uh, um, Pope Francis Generation newsletter um, website uh, for this. You, you can follow the newsletter, follow the podcast, join the group. Um, you can become a supporting member. Um, your, your support allows me to continue to do projects like this. Um, so yeah, it's PopeFrancisGeneration.com. Fantastic. And the show is also brought to you by the free community at Smart Catholics. We're so happy to be back here for season two again and partnering with Paul. Uh, if you're enjoying this show, then you'll probably come and enjoy the community that we are building at smartcatholics.com. Uh, please hit that like button. It does help more people to hear about these things, even if they are challenging. But heck, you don't join the Catholic faith because it's comfortable. You join it because it's true. Um and you feel, uh, you know, Christ is calling you to grow and take life more seriously and in a more Christic way. So uh, if you've got a question, again, head over to PopeFrancisGeneration.com and you can subscribe and follow Paul. Till next time, please say a short prayer for yourself and for us. Remember, don't be afraid to ask questions. Doubts can be a sign that we want to know God better and more deeply. God bless you. <laughs>